So once upon a time, there was a king called Melinda, King Melinda of the Bhatkya um, community. And he was a king who um, loved to debate and loved to inquire. And he drove his ministers and his counselors crazy because he kept answering, asking them questions they couldn't answer. And so they guided him to um, Nagasena, a very wise sage. And there are many um, writings of all the questions and answers between the two. And in one of them, King Melinda asks the question, by how many of the factors of awakening does one actually awaken? And Nagasena said, just one. Investigation of dharmas. And so Nagasena says, well, why just one? If there's just one, then why are they all the seven? Why do you need the rest of the seven if you only need that one to awaken? And so Nagasena said, if you have your sword in its sheath, can you cut with it? Um, and it takes all the other six factors to unsheath the sword and then be able to use it. And this is the sword of discriminating wisdom that cuts through ignorance. And so it is the um, um, director and pointer to wisdom, but it needs all of the other qualities, all the other factors of awakening to be able to use it effectively. And so this sword of discriminating wisdom, the Pali word is Dharma Vichaya, and that's translated as um, discriminating wisdom, investigative, the powers of investigation, investigation of dharmas. And when they talk about investigation of dharmas, it means dharmas with a little d, and that's when dharma is used to mean all of phenomena, all of the arisings and passings. And when it's used with a big D, it means the teachings, the Dharma, the truth, the unfoldings of all the um, wisdom that the Buddha shared. And investigation has these two roles, both the investigating part, the exploring, the understanding, and the discriminating part. And so both of these are important, these two functions, investigation and discrimination. And it's that investigation that's curious and inspires us to keep going. It's that looking more closely that Gil was referring to um, the other night, of, of mindfulness bringing the attention in, and then investigation just exploring and looking closely. It's an inquisitiveness, a keenness to know what's really here, what's happening right now. And the continuity of our mindfulness builds that. And then once it starts to arise, we're inspired to be more mindful, to keep going. So it's questioning and reflective. And it's an intuitive rather than a figuring out. When we have this intellectual figuring out, the energy gets dispersed. But this kind of reflective, open, intuitive questioning brings energy and brings joy and curiosity. So it's a feeling and a sensing 
and it brings a freshness to experience. So rather than a looking and a figuring out, it's much more relaxed and back and letting things reveal themselves. So it's seeing things as they really are, rather than superimposed with all our ideas and concepts and assumptions about the truth. What we take to be a certain way, we get closer and closer and see what's true. And we start to see how our mind brings assumptions in. We connect more fully and see what's actually happening. And I really um, used to notice this when I was practicing as a physician, how someone would come in and they'd say something and I could see a thought coming in and deciding, this is what's wrong. And then I learned to let that, just let that go. Okay, that's how I'm seeing it for now. And let more and more become clearer. So rather than closing the door and seeing just this view, just to let things, okay, that's what I'm seeing for now. But what else is true? What else might it be? So letting assumptions fall away and letting more and more of experience show us what is actually happening. And you could see, I could see the projections of my mind based on this one thing that I thought was going on that prevented me from seeing further, seeing more deeply, getting what was really happening for somebody. So it's, let's hold that interpretation lightly and inquire further. What else might be here? So that's the investigating part. The discriminating part is seeing what's skillful, what's not skillful. And this was such an important contribution the Buddha gave. Um, it's that ability to not just see what's here, but see what's skillful, what's unskillful. So we're seeing what's happening, and is it wholesome? Is it beneficial or not? So both of those coming together are really powerful. So the Dharma Vichaya adds an active component to the mindfulness. The two together are very powerful. It's like shining a flashlight. That's often the analogy that's used. Shining a flashlight in the dark so you don't bump into things, so you can see more clearly what's there. It lights up the field of awareness and it eliminates this, the truth. It shows us what's really here. What is it that I'm actually seeing? And then we start seeing the correct and application of attention to things. I think I was talking about it, that a bit the other night. Correctly applying attention. What do I really want to be looking at? Um, what am I choosing to look closer at? A week ago I was walking in the woods and I was looking at the green, all the different greens in the trees and seeing them really clearly. And it was so wonderful. And looking at the birds and everything, everything was coming into greater focus. And felt so expanded and light and wonderful. And I tripped over something. Because <laughs> I wasn't including the whole picture. And so it's discriminating wisdom. What are we choosing at to look more closely? What's appropriate here? And the other thing is, this investigation is very much a turning inward to let things. And first of all, we're experiencing the sensations in the body, the sounds, the 
um, the direct experience, getting letting that become more clear, but we're also looking at our reaction to all of what we're sensing and feeling. We're looking closer on what's the effect of that. So we're not just looking at the sounds and sensations, but we're also looking at the qualities in the mind that are receiving those sensations. How we respond to what's arising. And when we do that, when we combine those together, we start to see certain things, the truth of certain things more clearly. And the first of those is we see more clearly, how am I contributing to suffering? How is it that I'm contributing to what's going on? Gil was talking this morning about um, pain and the how when we look more closely we can see what it's composed of and we can see how we're contributing to it. So we might have a painful physical or emotional experience. And as we look more closely, we can feel the sensations in the body, what they're composed of, are they hot or cold or vibrating or how big they are, what happens as we pay attention. We look more closely. And then we also see what the effect of our attitude is. This is impossible to work with. Um, am I, are we tense around it? Are we resisting it? Do we have a story about it? Um, are we judging it? And we see the effect of all those. So we see how it is that we're adding to the suffering. And we look at the qualities in the mind. Are they tight or judgmental or fearful or peaceful? So we see both the wholesome, beautiful qualities and the difficult qualities. Another thing that we start to see as we pay closer attention is we start to see how much of experience is just coming and going. When we pay attention to the sensations, we see that they're, they're just as the sensations of tension and pressure and vibration are changing all the time and constantly moving, also our reaction to it is changing. So maybe the sensations are really unpleasant and we see how the aversion to them is coming and going. The sensation might become pleasant and then we like it and the liking is coming and going. We like it for a while and then we get bored with it and that becomes irritation. So we see how all these things are constantly changing. And then we see as we look more deeply that even our sense of self is changing. That that, the ways we see ourselves are changing from moment to moment. We're having a really pleasant experience. Now I'm a really good meditator. And then it becomes unpleasant. And now I can't do it and I'm a useless meditator. And that identity changes. And our identities change over time. The ways we see ourselves are not fixed. Um, so many years ago, I was sitting cross-legged. I didn't need all this stuff. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I can't see well enough, so I have to have it closer. And, <laughs> and I can't remember, so I need more notes. <laughs> and so our sense of self changes. Knees don't work as well. And um, my 
image of myself as being flexible and competent <laughs> and um, all these things has gone. And the degree to which I'm attached to that is the degree to which there's suffering. But events investigation shows that it's all changing. There isn't anything as solid. Um, our, the assumption and some beliefs we have about ourselves are changing all the time. And that's a relief as well. It's both scary and it's also a relief. When investigation sees that the assumptions and beliefs aren't so solid, it gives us a little space. Our perspective changes. There's just that bit of more allowing. And with that comes more strength and stability. We start to be able to trust more. This is just passing. It's okay to let these difficult states come. I'm not going to get it right all the time. (laughs) This is a moment of getting it right. This is a moment of getting it wrong. And so we're able to let them go. And there's a greater sense of ease and spaciousness. And we're less pulled around by the thoughts and feelings when we know that they're coming and going. There's an ease. And we can actually see how they operate. So there's more choice about how we respond. It gives us spaciousness. So mindfulness sees what's happening. It remembers to come back, to be here, to look, to see. And the Dhamma Vichaya adds, is this skillful? Is this going in a useful direction? And it shows us a possibility and a choice. Do I really want to follow this train of thought? Maybe we're caught in a very pleasant fantasy and mindfulness notices that. And investigation really looks more closely. Ah, seduced. Is this going in a useful direction? Is it possible to let go of this right now? So in our practice, we start beginning to know how to make adjustments. It's very helpful, this quality, because it helps us make adjustments and, and tune our practice more finely. What's needed and what might be more helpful right now. So maybe mindfulness shows that we're sleepy. Sleepiness is here. And as we look more closely with this investigation, just looking more closely, not trying to figure out, it might, is, might, might notice Oh, well actually there's boredom here. Or maybe there's fear. Or maybe this is pleasant and I'm attached to it. So it starts to tease it out a little bit. And then just from seeing what's here, that reveals what might be useful. So it might be, if we're just tired, that we need a little more energy. Or it might be that We need to open our eyes. It starts to become clear what it is to do without us having to figure out, just from looking closely. Once I was um, on a retreat and I was very sleepy. And I'd been quite concentrated, but I was very sleepy. And so I saw these voices come. You should stand up. No, no, you should open your eyes. 
no, it would be better to take deeper breaths. And then all of a sudden I saw this voice say, well, let me know when you guys have figured it out, and I think I'll take a little nap while you're deciding. (laughs) And so it sort of revealed that the going back and forth and figuring it out wasn't helpful. And what was needed just was just more lightness. And so we start to see, it starts to show us which, which tools which tools are needed. So rather than getting caught in figuring out, just by looking more closely, we start to trust what might be needed in each moment. So it's not an intellectual figuring out, but an attuned, alert, full presence. So we're becoming more fully attuned with our whole body, mind, and heart. So the, the, if you remember when we were talking about um, the factors of awakening, the first thing to do is to notice are they present or absent. So we notice, is this quality of investigation present for me or not? And if it is, then we can continue to cultivate it. And if it's not, how can I bring it about? What would support it? And obviously, continuity of mindfulness really helps. Really tuning in, getting a sense of connecting. When I was sitting just now, um, I I kept starting to drift off. And then, oh, what's needed is more continuity of mindfulness. There's actually no discriminating wisdom here. (laughs) But if I had a little more continuity of mindfulness, then I might be awake enough to have some discrimination. And so just that little bit of continuity really helps. And how do we inquire? What is it that we're paying attention to? We're paying attention to the body and the sensations. So for example, how it might work when we're paying attention to the breath is, for example, we might notice that this tension or tightness around the breath. Mindfulness notices, oh, there's contraction and tenseness. feel tight in my chest and there's tension around the breath. And as we look a little bit more closely, then we start to notice, oh, I'm striving. There's striving here. Oh, there's an agenda. I want to be really concentrated, and I'm not. And so just that looking more closely reveals what's happening. And then naturally, we can give a little more space or relax a little bit more. Or maybe we're spaced out. Maybe the mindfulness shows, oh, the spaciousness, I'm not connecting with the breath at all. And so Dhamma Bhavichaya, with the investigation, we notice a little bit more closely what's underneath that, and we can fine-tune and come in more closely. And so it helps balance in that way. So we're looking more closely at both the body and the breath and also the feeling tone of unpleasant, pleasant and neutral and how that comes and goes. We're starting to see things arise and pass and we're also starting to see our attitude to things. Are we judging or are we not? Are we being 
Do we have a kind attention? What's the effect of judging? Oh, it's uncomfortable. What's the effect of kind attention? Oh, I feel relaxed. So we just start to see the impact of how we are and what happens. So if we frequently give attention to mind states, as we will be doing in the next few days, we start to see which of the mind states are beneficial and which are not. And that's so helpful in our practice. We start to see how, how it is that we're, the negative mind states are perpetuating. What am I doing that's perpetuating them? And with investigating wisdom, we start to see that. It's kind of like having a garden. What is it that I'm growing here? Am I growing aggressive arugula? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's just what came spontaneously. <laughs> Am I growing belligerent broccoli? <laughs> or calm cucumbers? <laughs> I better stop. <laughs> we start noticing, what is it that we're cultivating? And, and that gives, a, gives us a, a possibility and a choice to do something different. What is it that we want to do? We're looking at what feeds the factors of awakening, these beautiful qualities of the mind, and what are we doing that's feeding the difficult ones. So mindfulness and investigation give this fine-tuning together. There's a connection and an intimacy, and there's also a positive feedback loop. The more mindfulness there is, the more the investigation grows, and as the investigation gets stronger, we get more interested, and that feeds the mindfulness. And whatever it is we're doing, whether it's walking or sitting or eating, whatever it is, gets more interesting and more fascinating, and more and more opens up. And so it's, it's um, like the hourglass that Gil was talking about. The more we enter this part of the the hourglass, the more interesting it gets, and the more everything opens up. So we're shining a light that's constantly revealing more, and there's more understanding. Another analogy I like is it's, you know, those domes that, glass, glass things that we had as kids, the snow domes, where they were this thing, and you shake them up, and they're all full of snow, whatever it is, and then as it settles, it gets more clear so we see clearly. But then what happens is we realize, ah, oh, there's no ceiling, and we see even more clearly. It's like being in a bubble, and the bubble breaks, and we can see even more. And then the next layer of the bubble breaks, and we can see even more. And we're more and more curious. So the limits of what we know keeps expanding, and that's the beautiful thing about this quality. An analogy I like from my childhood is when I was small, my mother used to take myself and my siblings ponding in England. And we used to go to the local small ponds, and we had these jam jars with a string tied around the top, and we would hurl them into the pond and then pull them back, and they'd be full with all these pond creatures. And at first, you know, the water would be murky and we couldn't see very much. And then we'd see all these different little things in the water. And we'd take them home and we'd put them into a glass aquarium. And we'd see even more and more. 
and as we looked more closely, we could see how all the little things behaved. And then we could see the effect that they had on each other. Just like you can with your mind, you see more and more closely how all the little things behave. And then the causes and conditions. So if there were no snails in the tank, the all the sides got covered with green algae. If we put snails in, they ate it all and we could see in. Some things ate others and we could see the effect of all the different dynamics in this little small microcosm. And in the same way, the further we explore inside, the more and more we see the causes and conditions that are occurring in within and what leads to liberation and what leads to confusion and wanting and um, aversion. And the other thing we start to understand as we use this factor more and more is how to, bal- how to create balance in the mind, how m- to use mindfulness to create balance. So that shows us when it's useful to use this quality of investigation and when it's not. And the Buddha had a beautiful sutta about this um, where he used the analogy of a fire. And when the fire um, is, when you want the fire to, to start, that's the wrong time. When you want it to blaze, that's the wrong time to put wet grass, wet sticks, and wet cow dung on it. And in the same way, if, um, if the mind is, is dull and sluggish and um, tired, that's the wrong time to use the factors of calming and equanimity and concentration. You put the fire out. But it's the right time for dry grass, <laughs> dry cow dung, and dry sticks. So it's the right time to use the factors of investigation and energy and joy. So when the mind is calm, sorry, when the mind is sluggish, then you want to use investigation. But if the mind is agitated or restless, that's not a useful time to put on your dry grass. Then you want calming things. You want calm, equanimity, and concentration. And so, if you're having a really restless time and the mind is agitated, then it's more useful to be, bring a calming factor in than it is to use investigation. Also, if the mind has got caught in a lot of thinking and analyzing and conjecture, not so useful to use investigation more useful to use calming and keep things very simple and stay with the breath. So if after the talk and tomorrow you are bringing this quality in a little more, you'll see quite quickly if it's not the useful time. If you start getting more thoughts and getting more agitated, then that's the time just to go back to the breath, keep things very simple bring calming in. And it's very self-correcting. It will show you very quickly (laughs) um, that this isn't a useful time. 
So you don't need to worry about overusing this quality because it will self-correct. And as long as there's mindfulness that says, uh-oh, there's too much agitation here, then we can bring the calming in. And what happens is we get increasing skill at fine-tuning. At the beginning of our practice, it's more a coarse tuning. <laughs> you know, and we find we're swinging from one side to the other. And as we get more settled, and some of you mentioned that, um, that you were either too sleepy or too restless. You were sort of ping-ponging between one and the other. And as we settle down, we start to be able to fine-tune a little more so that we can make adjustments. Because there's never one thing, as Gil was saying, there's never one, one perfect adjustment that will get us right and that will be it forever. We're always um, very gently fine-tuning depending on the energy and the conditions that are happening each moment. And that's always changing. So we can, we can notice with, with this beautiful quality, when we try some gentle adjustment, is this working? Is this helpful? And it's a helpful thing to monitor our practice in that way. So we're not just kind of going along without this, uh-oh, is this working? Is the, is the, is the clarity growing? Or am I just kind of hanging out in a sort of um, spaced out zone? Or have I been in fantasy for the last half of a day? <laughs> Whatever it is, we're just fine-tuning. Is this working? And we learn for ourselves what's right for us. We're all different. One way of working with pain may be useful for one person and not with another. And we trust what's right for us. But it's not helpful to have this, the, is this working, become Am I getting it right in a judgmental way? I have to get it right. I made the wrong adjustment. This is not okay. But it because the judging our mistakes or judging when we've overcorrected or undercorrected is a, is a hindrance and it's a, a block to the development of this quality arising. It gets in the way and blocks the energy rather than releases the energy. Um, it's, it, we're we're um, sort of blocking the discriminating wisdom from arising. There's um, a lovely analogy. Um, Rachel Naomi Rubin, in one of her books, um, has tells the story about the very first Concorde flight. And the very first time the Concorde flew across the Atlantic, um, they invited a whole bunch of VIPs to come on board. And some of them were taken um, into the control room. And one of the VIPs was sort of horrified to see there was no one flying the plane, kind of. And there were just these two computers that were there. And he heard this constant whirring and clicking and all these noises. And he said, what's that noise? And they said, oh, well, one, one computer is setting course and the other computer is correcting every time the plane goes off course. And he said, well, how often does it co go off course? Oh, about 90% of the time. And he said, oh my God, will we really get to Paris? <laughs> yes, we'll get to Paris and we'll get there on time, exactly. 
I said, wow, 90% of the time it's off course. Well, we're kind of like that too. <laughs> Rachel Naomi Rubin said, we're off course all the time. And wouldn't it be wonderful if every time we went off course, there was this self-correction and we said, oh, thank you for setting me on course again. And instead, when we correct ourselves and we're off course, we get pissed off. <laughs> we don't like being off course. But it, it's a natural thing. That's how we find balance, is by, is by getting imbalanced. That's how we come to balance again. And so, um, just if you can think of it that way, I find it very helpful. Oh, I'm off course. No big deal. At least I noticed. <laughs> Thank you for showing me that I'm off course. Now I can now I can get balanced again. And so it's that it's like a graceful way of finding balance and that really helps our practice. We really learn a lot about ourselves and our capacity. And we get finer and finer tuning all the way to equanimity. And the more this the more we travel through these factors of awakening, the finer tuning we're able to do with this quality. So each of the other factors helps us develop this quality more and more of fine-tuning and of deeper and deeper understanding. And we get a deeper trust in our own capacity to see clearly what it is that I really need in this moment. And that's such a powerful thing, to trust what's right for ourselves. So we also can use this quality of discerning wisdom to support us in our practice in when we come against emotional or physical difficulties or distress, to help us work with it, help us see how we're caught, and help us stop acting out the same patterns. Like so often, I know for myself, I, I respond to difficulty with the same patterns of <laughs> behavior that have never worked and still don't. <laughs> and so this is a helpful way of, of learning. Um, and some of you are familiar with the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N. How many of you are familiar with that? Yeah, quite a few of you. And really, it's simply mindfulness plus investigation. That's what it amounts to. The R is the recognize what's going on. That's the mindfulness what's happening right now. And then the A is noticing our attitude. Are we resisting? Are we allowing? What's the attitude? And the I is the investigation, the discrimination and investigation. And it's not cognitive, it's this getting in touch in a deeper way with what's actually going on. And then as we do that, what's underneath starts to reveal itself more and more. The tangle untangles gradually, and there's a shift in identity, we're less caught. And that's the end. We're not so identified, we're not so caught, and we're back in wholeness again. We've been separate and, and, and dis disconnected, and now we're back in wholeness. And so it's almost as though the gentleness of the rain dissolves the identification, dissolves the place where we're caught, and a self who's stuck, or afraid, or angry, or whatever it is, that, or in pain, or whatever the difficulty is. 
and we're, we're whole again. So it's recognize, allow, and investigate. Or recognize, know the attitude, and investigate. So we're seeing, allowing, we're directly sensing. And it's this direct sensing that starts to reveal and allow the unfolding. And instead of being identified, we're shifting to a more compassionate presence. And that compassionate presence allows a transformation. And because we see the suffering underneath, compassion arises naturally. It's not something we have to actually force or bring in. Sometimes just clearly recognizing the state itself is all we need to do. That's all, That's it. There's nothing else that needs to happen. But sometimes there's a real storm, whether it's physical or emotional, we're really caught in it, we're lost in it. And by gently inquiring, just looking more and more deeply, then we start to see what's underneath. It might be fear or sadness or um, anger, whatever it is. And when we see what it is, we can align with it. And when we're aligned with it, then there's more acceptance rather than a confused resistance. So suppose the mindfulness shows there's a whole bunch of negativity here. We're caught in some negative mind state. And mindfulness says there's lots of negativity here. And then investigation just looks a little bit more closely. What's feeding these negative mind states? Oh, I'm resisting them. That's feeding them. Oh, I'm believing them. I think that they're all true. That's feeding them. Start to see that that's what's happening. And the more we follow that, the more we see what's really underneath. Oh, there's sadness here. Oh, sadness. Oh, caring for the sadness. Or maybe there's loss or betrayal or whatever it is that's underneath. We really understand. And with that understanding, there's some letting go. So investigation points to the direct experience and it helps loosen all the layers so that we can really understand where we're caught. One retreat I was sitting, I, 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 everything would be going quite well and then all of a sudden I was dissatisfied with everything. I was, I, everything was irritating. And I, I noticed my mind was complaining about everything. I was resistant to going in the hall. I was resistant to my work meditation. Everything was disgusting. I was really feeling dissatisfied. And I couldn't, I was confused about what was really going on. But as I began to pay attention more closely, I started to see that, that what was happening was that I wanted the peaceful, clear states that I'd had before. And what was happening now was kind of ordinary and not good enough. And because it wasn't good enough, I was wearing not good enough glasses for everything that was going on. And so sort of having some gentleness and humor about that and saying, oh, I have a choice to take those glasses off and see if just this moment can be enough, this ordinary moment. And of course it was. And so seeing that dissatisfaction was what was going on was helpful. And so we start to begin to understand 
the cause and effect relationships of our practice. This is arising because of that. The criticality was arising because of the underlying things are not enough. And then as we look more deeply, we begin to see really and really deeply understand the impermanence and changing nature of everything. We start to see and really sense everything really is changing. None of these mind states are lasting. None of these sensations are changing. All of the mind states you had in the last sit have gone. They may have come back again, but other things have come in between. They are changing. The thoughts that you had five minutes ago have gone. Different ones are here. And we see how it's this nature of body and mind is just a paired process. It's really amazing how that happens. There's, there's the sensations in the body and the knowing of them, hearing and the knowing of it. And they're together, but they're separate. Can't separate them, but they're arising together. And we see that both the knowing and the object that we're knowing are not self. Both of them are not self. It's just this paired knowing. It's weird. It's, um, this is, this is round and it's also brown. And it's also makes a funny sound. All those things are in this one object. You can't separate them but they're occurring together. And it's the same way with this knowing, the sense, of, the sense of my hand moving, and knowing I'm moving it. Two separate things occurring together. And we really start to be more and more aware of that process. And as that happens, there's, there's more possibility of letting go, of every moment being fresh. This is passing anyway, so why hold on to it? Even the holding on is disappearing. The moment of holding on is gone. The me that was holding on has become the me that's got open hands. They're just continually coming and going. And so when we, when we really sense that, everything gets less sticky. And this investigation of dhammas reveals that. It shows us more and more clearly how things actually are, this fluidity of everything, the movement of everything. And in that, when we're not stuck to things, then it's more possible for us to see the shining nature of reality that's not obscured by all the things that we're caught in. So rather than looking at the stuck stuff, we're seeing everything, we're seeing the wholeness. So this investigation of dhammas is showing us this process and it's also showing us really clearly the teachings of the Buddha, like the first noble truth. It's showing us that there's suffering and that we have a possibility of not perpetuating the same patterns. We can use the dharma principles to change our experience. We can see Oh, I'm holding on to something. It's possible for me to let go. I don't have to repeat that pattern again. Sometimes um, 
in my practice and in my life, some really irritating habit pattern will surface again. And it'll be, oh no, not again. And instead, if I can have the attitude, oh, thank you for seeing this. This is a a possibility of doing this differently, of not watering that seed again. The fact that it came up and I saw it means I now have a chance to water a different seed, to not keep going in that way. And so in, in that moment, that's the third noble truth, just a moment of freedom. I didn't follow the old path. I, I, I was suffering, I saw the cause of suffering, and I didn't follow it. <laughs> Hooray! And that gives me the confidence to keep going with the fourth noble truth, to keep going with being mindful and having some wise effort and having some concentration and having a little um, integrity, um, having the intention to not be harming in, in my thoughts, to notice, uh-oh, those are not skillful thoughts. <laughs> you know, so to keep practicing. So it's inspiring. And you can see as I'm talking how this investigation of dhammas really brings in the whole of the teaching. Just by exploring and continuing, by looking at these qualities of mind. So it feels like, in a way, that this is a useful place to bring this to a conclusion. (laughs) Um, Discriminating wisdom can show me that, well, that feels kind of complete. It may not be that I've talked for an hour, but is it really skillful to talk for an hour? (laughs) Not always. (laughs) And so I'd really support you in Um, exploring this quality and noticing when it's there and appreciating it and really appreciating your own intuition. We all have it. Remember it's both that quality of just seeing more clearly, investigating, not a looking and appearing but a relaxing back and letting things reveal themselves but being there for them. And then bringing in the discriminating part. Is this skillful or not? And just through those two things can really support our practice so beautifully. And then what supports it is the continuity of your mindfulness. And that will naturally bring that in. And as the continuity builds and the investigation comes in, you get more interested and there's more energy. And that's the next factor of awakening. So, thank you for your attention, and may your interest grow and bring you joy. And let's just sit in stillness for a few moments. <laughs>